That's where it's not about what I get from this relationship. It's what I give into this relationship. Welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined today by Dave Giant Pastrami Sandwich Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? I am curious as to why you gave me that name. Uh, we just came from lunch at a Giant Pastrami Sandwich shop. What is it called again? What was the place we went to? It's called, oh, darn it. <laughs> Something that starts with a P. Yeah. Paninis? No. Oh, I can't remember now. Uh, I feel bad because like I'm from Pittsburgh and it's a Pittsburgh place. It's a Pittsburgh favorite place. And let me tell you, they stack Permani them inside. Brothers. Permani Brothers. Permani Brothers. Yeah. Since 1933 or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> something with the menu said. So anyhow, we just got back from lunch. The theologies of our body are very full. And so what I wanted to do, that was weird. I wanted to talk a little bit about what we are doing this semester. So our goal is to introduce you to the theology of the body through the lens of evangelizing the culture. Our goal through these episodes for the season is to make JP2's theology not just come alive, but be relevant to the cultural conversations that are happening right now. So understanding sex differentiation and gender roles and human dignity and you know feminism and men versus women and all the crazy things that we hear. How does the church think about these things? Equality, complementarity, sameness, difference, when we go through this, we want to tackle basically every episode kind of tackle a different aspect because JP2, I almost said C.S. Lewis, because JP2 was a master evangelist, theology of the body is an antidote to the cultural excesses of our time in kind of both ways, right? So the first episode, we introduced the theology of the body, its structure, its outline, but really, you know, the meaning and its importance. And last episode, we covered sex equality and complementarity, and we wanted to just talk about understanding how this complementarity, how men and women are not the same, but they're not so radically different, right? We have a shared human nature. What the implications are that in the conversations happening? We talked about essentialism and social constructionists. We talked about a lot of stuff, especially unprepared for the <laughs> initiation rituals of young men. But today we want to talk about love itself. We want to talk about the spousal love, especially through the lens of JP2's, before he was JP2, when his Carol Voitia as a professor at Lublin University behind the Iron Curtain, I think the only Catholic higher institution behind the Iron Curtain, he gave standing room only lectures called Love and responsibility. It's published in a book by Ignatius Press. It's fantastic, but it really helps you to understand the relationship of men to women. It's yeah, and it's it's not it's not super easy to get through going. No. So. Did I say it was? No, but you're like it's fantastic. It's like <laughs> you pick it up, you read, you right. put it down. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, so today we'll be talking about specifically some hot topics that we've largely lost the battle on in the church, namely contraception. And Gomer kind of alluded to this in a previous episode, but the whole issue of Humana Vitae, while, while not dubious at all, I mean, it was very clear-cut affirmation of the consummate teaching of the church, there was massive confusion after Humana Vitae. I remember yeah. asking my mom one time, like, what was it like? And he, she said, one, you'd go to one parish and the priest would say contraception is okay. You'd go to a parish a mile away and the priest would say it's not okay. That yeah. everyone just, we had no idea what was going on. And so in this way, it seeped into even the culture of the church and is now prevalent, unfortunately, within our church. And so we have to learn how to, first of all, 
address it from the point of view of right and wrong, from from philosophical, theological point of view, but also even how to engage the culture in this because it is not an easy topic to bring up. It's something that we don't share with any other Christian brothers and sisters. Yeah, and part of the 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 bigger difficulty here is we're also going up against a culture that views sex, like I said, in one sense, it diminishes it into no big deal, but in another sense, it elevates it to the height of basically idolatry. And it's funny that we maintain this double think, these twin modes of approach to sex, wherein it's no big deal, but it'll make or break relationships. And, you know, part of understanding human sexuality in the divine plan is the purpose of theology of the body. That is a man and a woman expressing their love for one another with their bodies because our bodies are us, right? Again, we don't want to separate body from soul. The soul is the, is the form of the body, and we have a spiritual soul, meaning a rational soul. But what this means, this is a beautiful thing. When Pope John Paul II, or Carol Wojtyla, when he was reflecting on this, this is where like the light came on of that Thomistic personalism for me in the theology of the body, because it was it's the idea of, it's not that you have reason, which is like the icing on top of the cake, and then you got these layers beneath. It's that if your soul is the form of the body, if it's what gives it its form and gives life to all of its individual members, and it's a spiritual soul because we have reason and we have free will, then what that means is that every aspect of our bodied existence is changed. It's, it's caught up in this idea of rationality. Right. So this means that while, yes, your emotions are non-moral or pre-moral or neutral, you can, while you can't command your emotions, you can train them. And so you have an obligation to train your passions, which is what we call virtue. When you not just do the right thing, but you love that you do it and you get pleasure from doing it, that's not for Immanuel Kant who believed your emotions devalue them. No, the harder it is, the, the more meritorious it is that you did it. To a certain extent, you could agree with that. Like a soldier fighting a war needs more courage to go, you know, right. run the line or whatever. But from the Catholic understanding, it's the exact opposite. When virtue, when doing the right thing becomes easy, become, you do it quickly, and, it, and it's a joy to do it, that's when your whole existence from your emotions, your appetites, all the way up to your intellect and your, and your relation with God are all in alignment, right? That's what you want. Right, integral. Right? Yeah, yeah, you're an integral. You're a whole human person. Right. So we're going to talk about that from the perspective of love. Yeah, and you know, w- with regards specifically to love, we have to understand that our bodies express something right? As we, as we've mentioned several times and, and that expression finds its deepest identity in the idea of self gift. And in order for self gift to be true, there are things that need to be true about it that need to be true about it. Namely, it needs to be both for unity and it needs to be both for procreation. And it's important to understand uh, something that I was confused by with reading the theology of the body without like theological guidance is that you have to understand that there, there's a certain end to sex, right? That we go f- towards the end, but it doesn't necessarily mean that every time you have sex, it ends in that way. Right? So the procreative aspect of it, a lot of people right off the bat will say, well, what about people who can't have children? Right? But the point is what we're trying to say is that there has to be an openness to that life because those two things are completely and totally mandatory for that self-gift 
to be true. When I think of love and responsibility for JP2, my favorite thing when I teach it, especially to high school students and young adults, is to walk through the ethical analysis of love, where he looks at it from, and you'll see this, you'll see the Thomistic personalism, where he roots it in the metaphysics, but then as it unfolds, and he uses the language of St. Thomas of concupiscence and whatnot, but as it unfolds, you can also see this personalism, this phenomenology, this attraction to the, the the actual, the individual act that you subjectively feel. Okay, so where do we start? Well, first and foremost, we talked about it a little in the previous episode, the distinction between objects and subjects. So everything is an object. Everything that exists that has being is an object, but only persons can be subjects, that is, have an interior life. And we're aware of three categories of persons. There's the divine persons of the Blessed Trinity, there's angelic persons, and there's human persons. Maybe there's aliens. Aliens. Yeah, <laughs> totally. We're waiting for the Pentagon Papers to come out on that one. So right now, of rational creatures, right, we have humans, angels, and God. And so when we talk about this personal, we say that they have knowledge, they can know and they can love, right? So as that, that's what it means to be a subject is you have an, I love how JP2 puts it, you have an entire interior world, right? Right. That is your own. And it's free originally. Free. Yes. Yeah. And so the goal is to make, as he says in his book, The Jeweler's Shop, which is like a play, is to so love someone that you think of throwing a bridge from your world to their world, right? You want to, that other person to become an alter ego, another self, that the two eyes can become one we. That's what we're moving towards. So in a hookup culture, that's not where you're moving towards. You want to keep people on the realm of objects. In fact, if they become too subjective, that makes us nervous because I don't want to see them as a person who has their own ends, their own wills, their own goals, their own whatever. I need to abstract and reduce them as much as possible right. to an object because I can use objects. It becomes more complicated when I use people, but in order to use people, I got to objectify them. And you see this in the workplace where people feel objective. I'm just a cog in a machine. I'm just right. this. I'm just that bureaucracy, right? I'm right. just a number, Right. We do this. I used to be the, the checker guy at a grocery store. And there were some people who treated you with dignity, make eye contact with you, talk to you, treat you like a human being. And there are some people who treated you like you were might as well have been a robot just scanning things. And I never forgot that. And I, you know, it's like people who work in like as waiters or waitresses, right? They always tip better for other waiters right. and waitresses right. because they know what it's like to be treated like crap. So, okay. So from this framework, persons as subjects, they're not just objects, they're also subjects. Then we get into, okay, what does it look like when two subjects fall in love? And so he says, it starts with, and this is the, the essentialism, it starts with the sexual urge, right? It starts with the desire that, or the realization that I have urges within me that are essentially aimed outside of me, that I can't feel like digestion. I take food in, I digest, right? I get all the nutrition from it, right? Whatever. These are actions that are done within me. The sexual act, reproductive act, is, is that which I cannot do alone, right? right? So the, it's so fascinating when we think about how essential reproduction is, but how it is tied to a relationship. So he calls that the sexual urge, and he call, and he makes a whole distinction between instinct and urge. He says animals have instincts because they don't have reason. Right. So this is where the urge is like, I can have this urge, but then I can govern I it with reason. Right. right. And that's an interesting thing that we don't 
acknowledge today. Yeah. It's just because you have the desire. Right. It doesn't mean you have the right to act on that desire. No. So like the example would be like, rather than teach kids virtue in school, we give them condoms, right? Because yeah. we, we say like, well, they don't have the ability to. A, a nice rule of thumb as you're like going through this is the more we isolate the sexual act, the worse it becomes. The more we isolate, like St. Thomas would say, right? Like the more it's isolated, the more we are on our own by ourselves, the worse, the more we've perverted it. And that's what we're essentially trying to do is isolate the act in a way that it, all it is there for is just this one moment of pleasure. So when sex ceases to be interpersonal and exchange of persons, it becomes mutual use as like, I consent to you using me. And that's the worst place that it can be. But it often becomes that because how do I respect the person? JP2 would say, you have to respect the whole person. You can't just respect part of them. You can't just respect the way they make you feel. You have to respect them as a human person with a past, a history, a future, you know, all that. So that theme is going to come back often. And one of the, like the most wise things I remember reading in the theology body that confused me at first was when he said, or I don't think, I don't know if this is in theology body or if this was in an interview, somebody's asking about pornography and his objection to pornography is not that it shows too much. It's that it shows too little, right. Of the yep. human person. And I think that's a classic phrase that you can use to evaluate yeah. your spousal love. Like, am I respecting the entirety of this person? Or am I just using them for this one thing, right? Like, how, how much am I respecting the entirety of the person? You know, what's interesting about that quote, that quote is really popular. And there's a famous comedian and podcaster who heard that quote while he was addicted to pornography. And it was one of the main things that pulled him away from his porn addiction. What? Russell oh, Brand. No way. Yeah, the oh, famous cool. Russell Brand, right? Mr. Contrarian himself. He said, a priest once said, but he didn't even realize it was JP2 or yeah. anything. And he's like, and that made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And you think about it. Why does it, it doesn't show too much. It shows too little. It shows body parts, not persons. Right. And it's built that way because the moment it becomes personal, all of a sudden that's someone's daughter, that's someone's whatever. And that's when you realize, oh, I've been instrumentalizing a human being. Yeah, it's. I don't even think it's just sexual, right? Oh yeah. Oh, I think, yeah like for true. my wife, you know, my wife like is exceedingly beautiful, right? Like there was, no, I had no business with her, but I watched. Right, shockingly, like shocking, like what is happening? Right, right. <laughs> I have this picture that I had my secretary put together of me and her, and and it says like soulmates, and it's like a terrifying picture of me and like this beautiful picture. <laughs> but I used to watch that happen. Like people would meet her and they would immediately overlook anything that would come out of her mouth, right? Like they, they would, and, and people would even say like friends of ours that you and I have would say like, ah, uh, yeah, she, you know, I, I don't know if she's that smart or something like that. And, and I would like read her journals and be like, uh, yeah, she's way smarter than anyone I know. Right. Yeah, her articles are incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember like, you know, being like, man, it's, she's, it's like, she's so beautiful. Like people are just focusing on that and they're not, they're literally, uh, you know, so it's not even, it can happen even in innocent ways, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's a burden that women face a lot more than men <laughs> yeah, right. tell you much. When you see me, you're like, Oh, that guy, I hope he's an intellectual. <laughs> 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 that's funny. That's funny. So for JP two, if there's a progression of love, so it starts with the sexual urge. That's that initial moment where you realize that you do not have all the resources to complete you. There's something beyond you and sex and sexuality originates from that place of I must go outside of myself in order to find myself. That's that law of the gift. So then he says, then the next step is what we call 
love as attraction. And for each one of these stages, if love stops there, it's not really love, right? It becomes a form of use or whatever. Love as attraction is basically where you say there's a characteristic, a quality, a whatever about a person that attracts me to that person, right? So again, we're talking about going from ourselves out of ourselves towards the other. And so this can be her eyes, his smile, her humor, his whatever, right? Like his income. Uh, it could be <laughs> it could be any number of things. Why'd you have to say his? Well, I don't, well, listen, there's a, there's a gender pay gap. It's very confusing. <laughs> so you sit there and we go through these things and we've all been there, like the experience of, I remember my wife and when I first met her, like the idea of her eyes was like captivating to me. There are a lot of people who have beautiful eyes, captivating eyes, sultry eyes. Yeah, Dave, uh, <laughs> Dave, sultry eyes, biblical. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. But for him, it was you are recognizing value in the other. Like these things are, and and it might be unique to you. You might be you're like all your friends. Right. Like, what did you see? Right. You know, which is, I'm sure everyone asks Amber about you. And uh, <laughs> you know, what is there? There's no there there. No, but like that that notion of like, what do you see in him? What do you see in her? And it's like, how can you not see this? Right. That's when you know there is. That's often what we call chemistry. Right. When there's this movement of at least in one person to the other, and he says, but if it stops there. It, it's, it's a possessive quality. It's like, I want that for me selfishly. Right. So then he said, for love to progress, it's got to go to the next stage. And that's what he calls love as concupiscence or love as desire. And love as desire is where, let's say that attraction, her eyes, his laugh, whatever, draws you to one another. Then you get to know them. You get to know their personality. Yeah. You get to know who they are. Maybe you're repulsed, <laughs> right? Oh, this is what you're really like. No, thank you. Or maybe you are intrigued. And you want to, and you're infatuated. You want to know more. You can't help but want to know more. I, I remember at Franciscan University when you, you would hear these guys, they'd be like, "So I've been talking with this girl, and like we went for a walk for like to like two o'clock in the morning, just like talking." You're like, "There it is, there yeah. it is." That's when it passes from attraction to love is desire. And he said, "Love is desire. The difference is you're not attracted to any one characteristic. You're attracted to oh, them as a whole." Right? But this is the distinction as a good for you. Like it's still mostly about you becoming satisfied. And he says, this is a part of love. But if it stops there, this is where it actually becomes the worst. Like this is where you're really actively using the other person. Yeah. And right? you start to say things like, we just fit together perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, girl. We're you made complete for me. me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So then you start to think about this. I mean, but think about it. you complete me is a very real statement that lovers can say to one another. Like True lovers, right? Yeah. True lovers, right? So you see this like, on the, on the basis of nature, male and female, like humanity is completed in both, but in the sense of like personal relationship, like, yeah, I'm in, I need the woman to call forth the best thing from the man. Right. We find ourselves in the self gift. Yeah. And so that love as desire is you, I desire you because you are good for me. And that's like my, my soul yearns to be complete. So when we talk about perfection and good intimistic language, like food is the perfection of hunger. You have a, a desire for food, you get food, you eat the food, that's its perfection. And so when we have the desires sexually, you know, physically, companionship, all of that stuff, emotional, like that's what the other is meant to be. And so when you find that relationship, it's so great. Then if it progresses onward, we call this love as benevolence. This is the next stage. So attraction, desire, benevolence. Benevolence is a Latin compound word, benevolencia, meaning to will the good, 
right? The Valencia, where we get the word volunteer, voluntas in Latin is will. So if I'm willing the good for you, that's where it's not about what I get from this relationship. It's what I give into this relationship. And this is where I think most people where love is terrifying. This is where love demands action, where love demands sacrifice, is where you realize not the Tom Cruise line from, uh, oh gosh, what does it call Jerry Maguire, you complete me, <laughs> right? But rather the Jack Nicholson line from as good as it gets, you make me want to be a better man, right, yeah. right? So for my wife, I wanted to live a life that was worthy of her love. Thank God. Right. But that doesn't mean that I think my wife was better than me. And there's, there's this weirdness because there are some men that will hear what I said and be like, oh, you're a simp, right? You think you put her up on some magical oh, pedestal. Oh, sure, sure. Right? And now you're trying to be weird. But it's like, no, but see, this is what love does. Well, yeah. And I mean, it, what you're missing, if you say that, is a gift of total self isn't easy. Right. Right. A gift of self is not easy. You have to possess yourself in order to give it. Yep. And no one possesses themselves anymore. <laughs> everyone else possesses us right? yeah we give Everything ourselves to everyone possesses yeah, us right. yeah so for yeah i would say okay that, that's a good way to articulate it that a simp is a man who puts a woman on a pedestal and is possessed by her whereas a true man might pedestal the woman in the sense of she is an object towards which he wants to be worthy of but he is self-possessed right. in his and so he's thus able to make a gift of himself Becoming, you know, enslaving yourself to another person is never a gift. You, you are making yourself unworthy. But see, this is what love is meant to be, is she returns the gift. Right. This is what JP2 calls reciprocity. And there's a problem of reciprocity. What happens if you love authentically, you benevolencia, right? You will the good, but they, but don't, they, don't, return they don't return it. That actually happened to me once. I, there was a girl at Franciscan before Shannon I had a crush on. Right. I, I had love as desire for her and we were friends and I was locked in that friend zone so hard. It was crazy. So I knew I had to either a break out of the friend zone and become a couple or end the friendship. Like, cause I knew that, you know, when you, when you say we got to be more than friends, that'll, that'll destroy yeah. the friendship. Right. right. And it did. It did. And she's like, Oh, that was so sweet. But, and then she shot me down for 30 minutes. Very nice lady. But I remember this notion of what do you do when you love and it's unrequited? Yeah. JP2 says that for some people, that faculty of love can grow so cold yeah. that it becomes impossible for them to love right. or to be loved. The perfect image of this is Home Alone 2, the bird lady, the pigeon lady, <laughs> right? She put her heart away so they could yeah, never be broken right, again. Right. But the, I don't know, that's the perfect image. <laughs> but JP2 also says that sometimes when love is cut off, like a flower, right? When the, when the plant is cut and its roots are still strong, It'll sprout up in other places. Yeah. And honestly, it took definitively closing that chapter in the way that she did that allowed the next chapter to be written, which is, okay, now I'm done with like this attachment that I've had for like a year and a half. Like, though I still value her and she's an awesome person and a friend of mine, that's done. Like, the romantic side is never going to be a thing. She's dead to me. She's dead to me. Yeah, she's dead to me. I blocked her on Facebook. No, it was before Facebook even existed. <laughs> no, but, like, then it allowed love to flourish somewhere right. else. And because it was rooted not in me wanting to use this woman. It was, like, we genuinely cared about each other. So there was that love of friendship that was very real and very true. But it, for her, it was, nope, it's not going to go further. And for me, I had to, those emotions had to die for her, for them to be real for someone else. And I think it's important to point out that the more self-possessed you are, the more integral you are, the easier it is for love to grow again. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, because if you're, 
I mean, if, if you're like the drama, right. Everybody knows a person like that. Who's like, like every week it's someone new and they're just like, Oh my gosh, he's really got my heart or he's got really got my heart. Right. That doesn't seem very self-possessed. It doesn't seem like that kind of person, but you know, you can't, you can't give yourself if you don't have yourself. Yeah. And, and I think that goes back to what you said. Like if you're possessed by, if you idolize the woman or, or the man, you know, depending on your case, if you idolize that the one you love and they break up with you or they reject your offer, that is devastation. That is that is that is damnation. Yeah. If if it's an idol and an idol rejects you, Absolutely. that's damnation. Absolutely. Which is why it's such a high priority to know the gods you worship. <laughs> it's why it's such a high priority. Let me put it a little bit better. To worship God. Yeah. <laughs> because he can always forgive you, right? And he equips you to become worthy of his love. So I St. Paul says, live a life worthy of the gospel. But at the same time, you never idolize another human person. Right. You can't do that. Yeah. But we do it all the time. People do it, especially when they're lost in emotions, when you're not self-possessed, when you're possessed by your passions, you do this. So from this perspective, JP2 talks about this. So sexual urge, love as attraction, love as desire, love as goodwill, the reciprocity of love. And then he has it crowned with betrothed love and the uniqueness about betrothed love. You can have all of these kind of loves with a friend. Right. right. But the difference with betrothed love that you can't have with a friend, at least you better not, uh, you gotta go to confession, uh, is it's with the body. It is primarily expressed through the union of the body, what he calls betrothed love, that it is a giving that is so complete that it involves not just your heart, not just your mind, but your physical self as well. And the way I tell people this is imagine it's your honeymoon night and your bride and I, I do this for both. It's so funny when I do this in the classroom because everyone laughs, but is also very uncomfortable. Right. So hopefully you're putting ear pods in and you're listening to this. I said, now imagine if it's your honeymoon night and it's the first time you save sex for marriage. It's the first time you're going to see the other person naked. And the husband walks out of the bathroom in his birthday suit and the wife looks at him and busts out laughing. Right. She just starts laughing and laughing. I, and, I, and I leave that. And, you know, everyone starts chuckling at first. And I say, what would be the first thing that you would do if you were the man? Like, what would be the, if she just starts laughing at you when you're naked, what would be the first thing? And, you know, the guy's like, I would be so ashamed. I'd run away. I'd just run down the hall of the hotel or wherever. Like, I'm out of here. Right. right? Like, and the other guy's like, yeah, you know, you cover. Right. Like, and where do you put your hands? We all, you know, where are you going to cover? Are you going to grab a towel and put it around your forehead? No, right. we know where you're going to do that because there is so much shame attached to our sexuality that, and, and because it's such an element of vulnerability, I said, now women, let me, let me do this. You come out of the bathroom for the first time. I, I just imagine, I just imagine you're in a hotel room, right? So that, that's where this scenario is working itself in my head. It's like, why is everyone in the bathroom all the time in these scenarios? I don't know. <laughs> it was bad, bad food at the wedding. Uh, no, so she comes out, she's naked. She presents herself to the husband for the first time and he starts to laugh at her, right? And, or rolls his eyes or whatever. And one woman, I, I've done this like maybe four years in a row with my RCIA folks. And I, I said this and one woman st almost started to cry. And she was like, the humiliation of that would be too much. The wedding would be off, right. right? So you hear this language and it's like, and then you go back to Adam and Eve, the naked without shame is embodying this betrothed love. I am a gift for you. And now because we've wrapped it 
in the vows of marriage because we've surrounded it with this institutionally. It's legal. It's religious. It's political. It's for it's till death do you part. You've wrapped so much. You're fit. You paid a fortune. Your families are there. All of this. If they all witnessed the vows, there's no going away. So the idea is only in that context can you become that vulnerable right. with someone else. And that's the beauty of Christian love. So for JP2, for love to be real, starts with the sexual urge. You find something, some good that you're attracted to. Then you realize that, no, I'm attracted to them as a person, as a good for me. And then you say, well, if they really are a person, then I need to be willing the good for them. And that takes self-control and self-possession in order to then give yourself in mutual reciprocity, which is betrothed love, right? And so with the body, that's why a marriage is it comes into being at the vows and is consummated in the honeymoon night. That's why getting it out of order, you are saying something with the language of your body right, that is a lie. Yeah, I belong to you. You belong to me. Well, just for tonight. You know, you're lying about love. Love, Dave's favorite theologian, Hans Urs von Balthasar, says anyone who, loves, <laughs> anyone who loves believes in eternal life. For who could wish that love to end? As Fulton Sheen said, love knows only two words, you and always. Right. And I love that phrase, you or for Plato. Always. Let's go back to even Plato by his symposium. The only love that's real is eternal source of love, right? Yes. And we are trying to imitate that eternality right. by yoking ourselves politically, legally, and religiously very, very publicly to one person till death do us part. All right, we're going to take a quick break right now. The fine folks of Ascension are going to give us a message, but but we want you to text EKSB to 77333. I think that's the right thing. Is it 33777? Oh, no. I, oh, no. You know what? Just send us an email. <laughs> email us EKSB at AscensionPress.com. That goes to both me and Dave. It, it's one of those emails that sends out to a bunch of different people. And uh, if you have questions, comments, concerns, send it to EKSB at AscensionPress.com. And then I'm pretty sure it's text 7733, EKSB to 77333, and you'll get on our email list. We promise we won't spam you. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jansen. And we're the hosts of Catholic Classics. Join us for season two of the podcast, where we will read and explain the Confessions by St. Augustine. So the Confessions, it's a classic, we all know that, but why read it? In this book, St. Augustine testifies to God's power, God's ability to draw him from a life of sin and error into a life of holiness and of genuine service of God's people. And not only are the confessions a testimony to St. Augustine's life, but also a testimony to the way by which God works in each of our lives, bringing us from our sin to a life of holiness, drawing us ever more and more into God's very own life. To follow along, you can find the reading plan at ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics. Welcome back. We've been talking about spousal love and responsibility and about the stages of what, what happens in a person's life when they, they fall in love and, and give themselves as a total and complete self-gift to a person. And the last thing we talked about was the, the eternality of it, you know, and I, this is a big problem for today that we have to we have to address is that there really aren't things that are eternal, right? We don't have those kinds of things in our life, right? Everything. It's funny, I you know we've been we've been getting ready to remodel our house, and I keep saying like, well, what if I have to move or something like that? And everyone's like, ah, it does. Don't worry about it. You know, everybody moves. They're, they're doing things all. It's like, no, this I plan on this is going to be for the rest of our lives, right? This is going to be for my kids, you know, that kind of thing. We just don't have. We have such a transient 
world. And I think one of the biggest problems is that when we're evaluating this and we get to that point where we will the good of the other, the next biggest question is, do we will the good of the other forever, right? This is not, there's no going back from here. And that's like a major issue in our culture where we don't think that marriage is forever. And we, we fall back on things like divorce and we have the things you sign before you, prenuptial agreements, you know, which invalidate marriage because it makes it not forever. This is something that lasts forever. And the foreverness, you know, as we say, JP2 is laboring to show us how marriage and sexuality and the body is a fundamental affirmation of the goodness of creation. So when you talk about like in heaven, you're not going to be married. We're not Mormons. We don't believe in celestial marriage and all that stuff. But that's not like your love just disappears and you don't know right. who you t- You're like, I, 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 this is vaguely familiar. Right. Yeah. Would you know my were, you, were, were you the one who laughed at me when I came out of the bathroom? <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. No, you giggled. That's right. It was a giggle more than a laugh. So that was weird. Um, but the idea is, like Christ says, men will be like the angels, neither married nor given a marriage. And because we will all be caught up in the grand spousal love that is the Trinity. Spousal love is a participation. It's a sign of the intensity, intimacy, and self-giving nature of Trinitarian love. Which is exactly, when he says that, that's exactly what should come up in your head right now is why the church takes sex so seriously. Right. You know, people love to make fun of the Catholic church for their rules about sex. They call them the church of no and stuff like that. What it really is, is that the church takes sex so seriously because it is a sign of our creator. Yeah. And the fundamental goodness of creation. It is good that you are. It is good that you are you. It is good that we formed this one cosmic we called the church of which marriage is a sign and sacrament of, right? When St. Paul in Ephesians chapter five, and this is where JP2's meditation would go, when he talks about the sacrament of holy matrimony, he wants to frame it within the context of Christ's love for the church. And within that love of the church that is eternal, the sacrament of holy matrimony takes on, or you could say the natural order of matrimony becomes sacramental. So yes, you can have two atheists marry each other and it is a natural marriage that if they wanted to become Catholic and they had a divorce, like they have to seek an annulment. If there's a divorce and remarriage, a lot of people don't understand that there's natural marriage. And then there's the covenantal reality of sacramental marriage. And so as Catholics, I mean, think about that. Christ elevated marriage, which already existed, the primordial sacrament. Adam woke up and he was married to Eve. Jesus Christ elevated that to the dignity of a sacrament. One of the seven ways that communicates God's life, his grace, and our vocation to us. So with that being said, so two weeks ago, we had you read Genesis 1 and 2. Last week, we had you read Ephesians chapter 5. This week, I think an excellent meditation for you. This is, you know, maybe it'll take you 20 minutes to do it, but I would recommend you do it nice and slowly, maybe take a whole holy hour. Sometime in the next week, sit down with the Song of Songs. It is eight chapters long. Each chapter, it's not 50 verses like John will get you. It is just nice and simple. 
and it is archaic. You'll run into the weird language of like, our couch is verdant. And you're like, what does that mean? Look at the rafters of our house. They're made of cedar. And you're like, okay. (laughs) But go pace yourself through it and go through it. Because the ancient rabbis used to say that, that the Song of Songs is the height of the Bible because it expresses Yahweh's love for his people, Israel. And for us, it is the manifestation of Christ's love for the church, which is why so often in John's gospel, especially Christ is called the bridegroom. John the Baptist said, I'm the friend of the bridegroom, meaning he's the best man, right? right? And the bride is you. So understanding this bridal language, we've got to go back to Song of Solomon. I think that's, I think that's good. I think it's a good challenge. Yeah. Amen. All right. Thank you all for joining us. Remember, uh, send us an email, EKSB at ascensionpress.com. We love to hear your feedback. This is the world's greatest Catholic audience feedback show. (laughs) I just made that title up, but I think it's true. I think it's true. God bless y'all. 